Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so honored that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Bonnie Christian, and I'm going to be talking with her about her recent book, her brand new book, actually, called Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and corrupting Christian community. Now, maybe over the past few years, you have been wondering of what do I do with all of this? It seems really difficult to talk with people about uh, politics. I don't really know what to do. Is there any hope for for this? And especially as it concerns conspiracy theories as well, what can we do about that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about here in the podcast today. What can we actually do about that? And Bonnie is going to dive into that as well. Now, if this is the first time that you've been listening here, I do want to tell you about a couple of things that inform everything that we do here. The first is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. We're going to get into one of those difficult conversations and uh, actually probably many difficult conversations uh, today. And we want to be the place to wherever we can have respectful dialogue, that we can disagree without demonizing or dehumanizing the other side, no matter how much we may think that they are wrong. We believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. And we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything. As well, whether that be something you know, trivial as a movie or a TV show or a YouTube video or music, all the way to something more serious of what we're going to talk about today in the knowledge crisis and conspiracy theories and politics and, and how to engage in all of that stuff. The last thing is that we want to be, be the person who was there for us or the person that we wish was there for us. And especially around this knowledge crisis, it's going to take, we're going to need to surround ourselves with mentors and we're going to need to help guide people through this crisis as well. Now, if you want to continue to learn with us, the best thing that you can do is subscribe to my newsletter, which is in the show notes. And you'll just get that for a link of all the things that I'm thinking about and learning from each and every single week. Before I tell you about Bonnie, let me tell you a little bit about this book. I remember seeing this book for the first time and just thinking like, yes, this is a very much needed conversation that needs to continue to happen. And we have to figure out how can we, how can we do this? How can we, how can we figure out all of this stuff that's happening? And there's, there's just so much that we, there's a lot that we talked about and there's a lot more um, that we just didn't get to. But there's just so many things. This is an idea of the knowledge crisis that I didn't have the word for it before that, but I've just been thinking about it a lot. And so really glad to have Bonnie on the podcast today. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Bonnie, and then we will jump right into the conversation. So Bonnie Christian is an author of uh, the book, Untrustworthy, as I just mentioned, and A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. And I haven't read that second one, but I am very much looking forward to, to reading it and learning from it as well. As a journalist, she writes opinion pieces on foreign policy, religion, 
electoral politics, and more. Her column, The Lesser Kingdom, appears in print and online at Christianity Today. She is a fellow at Defense Priorities, a foreign policy think tank, and her work has been published at outlets including the New York Times, The Week, USA Today, CNN, Politico, Reason, and The Daily Beast. She is also a graduate of Bethel Seminary and currently lives in Pittsburgh with her husband and twin sons. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Bonnie Christian. Bonnie, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Yeah, thank yeah, you so much and for Just as we're me. getting started, you know, a lot of your, pretty much all of your book is based around what you call the knowledge crisis that we're going through. And just as we're getting started, can you kind of tease out that knowledge crisis and what it is and how it's affecting us? Yeah, so the idea is it's it's sort of that that sense of uncertainty and unease that I think a lot of us feel as we're trying to engage in the media environment, especially, but not exclusively online, where there's just a lot of questions around like, you know, how, how can I know what is true here? Like, what is even knowable? Who can I trust? These kinds of questions that are difficult to answer, um, especially, and, and that are being raised constantly by just the, the sheer volume and, and quantity of, of media that we're consuming these days. Um, and so, it's it's not just about information, of course, though, because it also that that those questions and, and when we can't answer them and when we're answering them differently, especially from like loved ones or, or people in our congregations, then it, it really becomes like a relational crisis as well and something that affects much more than just, you know, what is our sense of some recent current events? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about the relational crisis in it that you mentioned, because that's uh it's just something that I just don't think it's talked about very much as it pertains mm-hmm. to the knowledge crisis. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something that a lot of people have started having experiencing in their, in their families, particularly. And a lot of people I've talked to it, it, it'll tend to, to run across generational lines, you know, sort of in the, in the way that you would expect political divisions to happen between like parents and adult children, except it's now no longer just we disagree about what would be a good policy here. It's also like, are we seeing the same reality? Like we can't even agree on what are the facts of, of, of this and, and who could tell us what the facts are and um, like, what are we even talking about, let alone what should we do about it? And I think for many people that's been going on for a few years um, it, at, a, at a much greater intensity than it ever used to. But now, uh, especially in the past, I don't know, two, three, four years, it's also, I think, hitting at the congregational level. And a lot of pastors are observing that um, they're observing like this knowledge crisis in congregations and also starting to say, you know, this is really a, a discipleship issue because it, a lot of so it's so closely tied to where are people spending so much of their time, where are they putting their attention, and by implication, what are they, what voices are they giving authority in their lives? Mm-hmm. Do you see it showing up differently in the church than outside of the church? 
I think a lot of the the sort of like personal behavior is the same. Um, but for Christians, of course, there's, I mean, you know, unlike some people outside of the church, we, we do think there is an objective truth out there, not necessarily that we always are going to grasp it fully or correctly, but that it does exist. And so there it's, it's more troubling to me, I think, to see a Christian in particular, um, you know, saying, well, I'm, I'm going to believe this story that just sounds right to me, this story that favors my political tribe, um, or, you know, I'm going to throw up my hands and say, well, I guess we just can't know and just think what you want. That's, that's, you know, that's a much more um, troubling contradiction in a Christian than it is for some people with different belief systems. Um, and it also, I think in the church, insofar as this relational issue, um, you know, it's fostering like disunity and in Christ and, and like not loving behavior toward one another. And so it, it's sort of that question of, um, you know, that passage, I think it's in first Corinthians where Paul says, like, who am I to judge those outside the church, right? Like people outside the church haven't committed themselves to like Christian standards of how to treat one another, but in the church we have. Mm -hmm. And so if we're not meeting those standards, because of this knowledge crisis, like that's a problem in a way that it it isn't to the same degree for people outside the church. Talk to me about like you mentioned, uh, um, like some of the behaviors and stuff. What are some of the behaviors that you see of like because we're all guilty. We we could all fall victim to the knowledge crisis. Talk mm-hmm. to me about some of the behaviors of of people who are maybe falling ill to that knowledge crisis. Yeah, I think you could talk about it in two senses. One, which is you know maybe easier to identify would be very much about habits and time use and again where you're putting your attention um something that i i've quoted pastors in the book saying and that i've seen pastors saying again and again is um this like almost verbatim line to the effect of like i get people in my congregation for one or two hours a week and msnbc or fox news or facebook or twitter or whatever gets them for 15 20 30 hours and they can't compete with that um so that like that, if that's true of you, that's a yeah. a big red flag right there. Um, and sometimes it's true of me. I mean, not, not cable news. Um, but you know, I, I have to be online a lot for my work, which makes it a little bit different because I am like doing something specific, not just browsing, but it's still, you know, a huge mismatch of attention. Um, so that, so those kinds of behaviors, like the, that sort of, um, you know, every two seconds that you have to spare whipping out your phone and like, got to see what's happening. That, that sort of thing I think is a big indicator, but the other half of it is much more about like the effects that those habits have on our, our brains and our thinking. And so, you know, here we'd be asking questions like, like, can you even hear yourself think anymore? Like, is your mind ever just quiet or um, is it always like going on to some new news story and also as you're taking in information are you are you really doing it with like intellectual honesty or are you looking for what you want to find as opposed to what the the truth really is um and so that's sort of where the the breaking our brains part of the subtitle of the book comes from because i think at a at a certain point the way that our our the way that we're living, like our habits, it really does shape 
what kind of people we are and and to a degree what we're doing starts to become a little less voluntary like we lock ourselves into these patterns and um patterns can be you know like a virtuous cycle or it can also be a vicious cycle and in, in, in this case a vicious cycle mm-hmm. i i was listening to i can't remember if you talk about this directly in the book but i remember listening to an interview that you did with it and you mentioned this quote that just struck me in a new way and it's like we are frightened of people when we don't understand how they made their decision mm-hmm. can you talk about mm-hmm. that dynamic Yeah, so that comes from an idea, um, a concept in psychology called theory of mind. And theory of mind is basically in in an adult with like a normally developed brain, you have a, a good ability to look at someone who is making a different choice from you and sort of game out why they would have come to that conclusion, right? Like you can think about, okay, they have these different values than I have, or they're in these different circumstances, or, you know, they have more or less money than me. Like you can, you can think about all the factors and you can see like, all right, I understand that is not the decision I would make, but I can sort of Mm -hmm. imagine the steps that they went through to get there. Little kids can't really do this yet. It doesn't, it doesn't develop until I want to say maybe starts, it starts around like adolescence. Um, and you can, you can tell once you're familiar with the idea, you can pay attention to how little kids talk sometimes and some of the questions they ask. Like they, it's just sort of opaque to them how other people think about things or the idea that other people have their own mind and decision-making process that's separate from what they would want or what they would do. And so I think in, in American politics, especially when we get into like really hardcore partisanship where people legitimately hate the other side, I think we're we kind of like losing our theory of mind. Like it, it's, it's in that regard, like it's become really difficult for many people to, or, or impossible to understand how their political opponents could come to such a different conclusion than they would come to. Like they can't game things out. And when you, when someone is incomprehensible to you in that way, it, you know, it does become really frightening. It's why like in foreign policy, we'll talk about um, you know, is someone like uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, is he a madman? Um, because that's like, that's much more frightening if he really is irrational and you can't sort of like figure out how he'd respond to incentives. And I think we've started to think about each other in domestic politics that that same way of like, these people are not rational adults with coming to different decisions because they have different inputs from me. They're just totally unpredictable and and unintelligible. And yeah, that is, I think, frightening. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's just the result of like the knowledge crisis that we're going through? Because like for, for some people, like, because I can imagine like if you're either really far right or you're really far left, it can go, or we can think, Hey, they are, they, they just don't make sense to me. However, Mm -hmm. like if we looked at it, you know, um, I don't, I don't want to say object like objectively because you know, it's, it's hard for us to be objective, but it's like, okay, so it does make sense. We just don't agree with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely related. And I think, um, cultivating your theory of mind is a part like, and deliberately like trying to, to go through that exercise and, and saying like, okay, I should not just assume this person is, um, you know, a, a crazy person, I need to like actually think this through um, and and like practicing that the way you practice an exercise. I think that is part of 
cultivating like the intellectual virtues that we need to be able to to pull ourselves out of this crisis yeah and and i want to i want to touch on those in a little bit man there's just so much that i want to talk with you Mm -hmm. um about but i want to keep teasing out uh the problem a little bit and actually i do Mm want to ask um kind of where where did all of this begin for you i know that you did like a lot of research and and journalism around QAnon. is that where it started for you or was it before that um, it wasn't just QAnon. That was certainly part of it. But yeah, I would say um, 2017, 2018, um, 2019, 2020, like those three, four years, I sort of found myself writing, not like, not, you know, sort of planning a series or anything, but returning just by virtue of looking at each day's mm-hmm. you know news and and thinking what is there to write about here um returning to a lot of related topics and gradually um started to to see the connections between those things and and decided that they were really all part of this this bigger problem and that you know perhaps I should should write about it in a in a more comprehensive mm-hmm. way was there like did it just happen gradually or was it more or was there like a a moment or a day to wherever like everything just clicked and you were like i think there's more going on here than maybe what you previously thought hmm. um i don't know about a single day i mean i in in the book and i i think we'll probably talk about this at some point i talk a lot about epistemology yeah. which is um a branch of philosophy that that is concerned with the study of knowledge itself and there was definitely an article in 2019 or 2020 that I wrote talking about um, polling and and the way that people, what people expect from um, and the way that they interpret political polling as a, a an epistemic problem. Um, so maybe I would point yeah. to that. Let's talk about the uh, epistem. I, I always get the word wrong. Can you say it again? <laughs> epistemology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So epistemology is this branch of philosophy. Um, a lot of the way that it's handled in like academic philosophy today is is pretty esoteric, and it's you know it's interesting. I can see why people want to study it, but it's not going to be super relevant or interesting to the average person most of the time. Um, and so I think, you know, many people have never heard of epistemology, don't need to know about it. Um, but epistemology in a, in a more practical sense, and especially in a, in an older sense. So like pre, um, the last few centuries, if you go back further than that, epistemology was very much concerned with, um, developing virtues. It was very much concerned with you as a knower, um, as opposed to teasing out all the finer points of, of what is justified knowledge, which is where a lot of the modern discipline tends to be. And so that, that older tradition of like, can we become epistemically, or you could say intellectually virtuous people? And what does that look like? That I think is something that is super relevant to us right now. And something that, you know, maybe there would be other, plenty of other times and places where you wouldn't have to know about epistemology at all. But I think the way that we live now, the way that we consume information, we actually do need to be aware of it and think about it a little bit more deliberately um, in that older sense of, of being focused on on what kind of um, knower am I. Yeah, and that, that brings to mind like another thing that I've heard you say before is that it's not about the knowledge, it's about the knower as well. 
And like, that's something that I've been thinking about. Just what, just what you're saying too. Like we live in such a mm-hmm. fast paced society that doesn't, it doesn't help us in, in this either because we need to slow down and we need to think, can you just talk about like even just that dynamic of it? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit um, stealing that line from a writer named Freddie DeBoer and he, his original phrasing is something to the effect of like the, the problem isn't that there are lies and liars because there will always be liars. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is not that the lies exist, but that people believe them. Um, it's not the liar, but the believer. And so I, I had to tweak it a little bit because saying the problem is the believers yeah, in like it, yeah, Christian yeah, yeah. settings, you know, it's going to have a little bit of a different read. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what he says is right. Like there is always going to be lies or, or to use like the more um, currently trendy phrase, you could say there's always going to be misinformation mm-hmm. um, like that there. You're not going to eradicate um, the internet or the world more broadly. You're, you're not going to get rid of falsehood on there. That's just, that's just a part of the world. And there is no, as much as people like to talk about like, oh, we're going to regulate it. We're going to, you know, make the, the companies do better content moderation. There's just no big top-down fix that's going to do that for us. Um, and in fact, I, I I mean, I think from like a policy standpoint that a lot of the things people are proposing would be worse than useless. Um, and so regardless of what they try on that front or what innovations people come up with to try to like improve social media or, or traditional media or whatever the case may be, I think we are still going to be in the same position of figuring out how how we can be coming into the situation as more responsible and honest knowers as opposed to trying to fix all the knowledge out there because we can't do that we just can't well in in the book you get into so many reasons and explanations for what has led us to this knowledge crisis and even what's still being contributed to it today Um, and there's several that i want to ask you about but i'd love to start out with what is one of the reasons that you would say is is maybe not as obvious to us, or we maybe tend to underestimate the effect that it has on us. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess if I'm thinking about, so there's like six yeah. chapters that handle that kind of stuff. I would probably point to the the chapter on emotion. I think that that's something that a little bit flies under the radar. Like we're not having debates about the role of emotion in, in gaining or communicating knowledge in the way that we're having debates about like cancel culture or, or identity or, or what should the media be like? Um, but I think that's a, a really big one because, um, you know, we're not perfectly rational beings just out there deciding based only on the facts. And, and this is why, uh, so many, I think of the attempts to deal with this by saying, we're going to do more fact checks and we're going to push back on that misinformation. Like they're not bad. We should, we should like try to set the record straight, but the idea that that alone is going to fix it, I think is really naive because it doesn't account for the way that people actually work when they're making decisions about what to believe. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that that is the one that doesn't get as much airtime? Mm, I mean, some of it might be that it's, you know, it's a, a problem across the political spectrum because it's much more about human nature as opposed to any specific political movement and so um you know if you if there's no benefit to saying look this is the other guy's problems there's less interest in talking about it right now perhaps um and and i think a lot of it is also just 
you know, like an, an like a naive failure to notice that it is a problem, you know, because we're we're all the same in that regard. Um, and so I think, you know, for all of us, it's easy to to fail to recognize the way that emotion is involved in our reasoning and the way that we're not, you know, making these purely disinterested decisions the way we like to think we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It even brought to mind, and I know that you you talk about this in the in the in the chapter on it, is mm-hmm. how um we we tend to hold a double standard with emotion. Because like if you're getting emotional, I'm like, you know, Bonnie, stop being emotional about it. But mm-hmm. then I will get emotional about the other topic. And I don't I don't point out the contradiction in that either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's I mean, it's so easy to do, right? Because when when you're <laughs> And because, you know, it's not necessarily illegitimate to to have um, emotional factors play into your argument to your decisions. In fact, sometimes it's really important to have that. Um, but, yeah, the way that we we lionize reason and, and with good cause, um, we lionize it in a way that just doesn't match up with how we actually function. And so that sets us up to, to sort of play that unfair game where we want to ban emotional arguments or, or, or thinking in other people, but then indulge in it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that you write about in the book is you talk about conspiracism as well mm-hmm. and conspiracies and how they uh, lead to um, just, just increasing the knowledge crisis as well. Can you talk about that? And you maybe even start with, cause I know that you uh, define what a conspiracy is. So maybe start with there and talk about the effect that it has on us. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about conspiracy theories as if the whole category is illegitimate. Um, And that, you know, by definition, if something is a conspiracy theory, it's wrong. Now, I am very much not a conspiracy theory person, but I don't think that's true. Like sometimes conspiracies do happen particularly if you go back to like the 1970s, um, there were some big congressional investigations, things like Watergate, things like MK Ultra. all this stuff came out that were like legitimate conspiracies that were investigated and exposed by like, you know, the government was investigating itself um, and, you know, reputable news organizations. So, so like these things happen, conspiracies do happen. Um, and so it's, you know, I think most conspiracy theories are wrong. Um, but the, the category itself is not inherently like something to always be dismissed because, you know, occasionally, very occasionally they, they turn out to be right. Um, so what's, what I think is, is much more concerning is what, um, a, a pair of political scientists, uh, named Nancy Rosenblum and Russell Moorhead, um, Muirhead, I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name. Um, but they they call it conspiracism. And it's, so it's not like about any particular theory. It's much more a mindset. And so the difference is that um, beyond that distinction, uh, it's not really interested in like, you know, we think about conspiracy theorists as in like the X-Files sense of like mm-hmm. the crazy guy down in his basement. He's got the wall of red string and he's got the classified documents and he's like sneaking around meeting with government sources and parking garages and so on and so forth. And it's this whole elaborate web of proof that shows that his theory is correct. Um, Conspiracism is not, you know, sometimes conspiracism will claim to have some proof of something, but it's really not interested in um, 
it doesn't need it doesn't need that kind of proof it's it's very much about like innuendo and accusation um you know just just sort of making an allegation against a person you already disliked uh it doesn't really need details um it, it, it you know it doesn't do research it, it does like just rumors mm-hmm. and and so it ends up being at once very cynical toward anything that anyone who you already disagree with is claiming and that can just be dismissed out of hand and all but also at the same time very gullible where anyone whom you're already favorably inclined toward doesn't matter how crazy the thing they say whatever it is they're alleging you just take it on faith and and that's you know now become part of your um your mindset about things and so you know i don't think i think that it is possible to believe a conspiracy theory or two and not be in a knowledge crisis but i think once you get into that conspiracist mindset mm-hmm. where you're like just pathologically suspicious then you're definitely moving into a knowledge crisis territory yeah and and you write about a little bit how Christians can sometimes be vulnerable to this. In fact, I, I want to read this quote that you have. Is you say that conspiracism can be mistaken for biblical directive, and it can start to feel like a part of Christianity itself. Can you talk about that and how conspiracism can play into Christianity and, and maybe why Christians could be so vulnerable to it as well? Yeah, I think it's for a few reasons. So one... Um, and this is pointed out by Ed Stetzer, who's an evangelical pastor and scholar, used to edit Christianity Today. He pointed out in an interview um, last year that uh, he said, people of faith believe there's a divine plan, that there are forces of good and forces of evil at work in the world. Um, and he was specifically talking about, about the QAnon movement, but he says, I think this applies more broadly. He says, QAnon is a train that runs on the tracks that religion has already put in place. So like, it's very, I think, naturally easy for Christians, especially Christians who have a strong sense of like spiritual warfare and God's activity in the world. It's very easy, I think, for Christians to to accept a story that paints, similarly paints a picture of all of these hidden forces that are are working sort of behind the scenes um, for a good plan and an evil plan. And, you know, as Christians, we should support the good plan and be telling um like the good news if you will mm-hmm. that this good plan is underway um this idea of a, of a big grand historic plan that affects the whole world just makes a lot of sense to christians and that's how a lot of conspiracy theories and especially um you know the QAnon movement does this does exactly this uh that's how a lot of conspiracy theories work so i think that's a big part of it but i also think in a more specific sense um You know, many, many Christians, especially in like the boomer generation who came of age in the 70s when all those reports were coming out, um, they also came up in the context of this book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And that book is certainly not alone in encouraging Christians to basically try to read current political headlines into scripture and especially into Revelation. Um, but it did, it was incredibly influential. It was the bestseller of the decade and that book and that mindset that it both came out of and then immensely encouraged it, you know, there are a lot of Christians in America who are extremely used to thinking that way, to thinking like, 
things that are happening in the news and the day-to-day basis, you can sort of parse them in a in light of the Bible and figure out like which things that are happening are evidence of the progression of God's plan for the end of the world. And when you start thinking about current events that way, you, you with that assumption that everything is part of a big plan, mm-hmm. <laughs> then, you know, conspiracy theories make a lot of sense. Um, and so, especially once you've, you've brought scripture into it, mm-hmm. then, yeah, you, you know, it's, it's easy to make that strong connection um, between your your conspiracism and your faith um, because, you know, the, the, the Bible is involved in both spaces and, uh, yeah, it just all checks out. Yeah. One thing that you, and again, I think it's maybe just a sentence or two that you mentioned in the book is, um, is you talk about how the, the right can very much be like, yep, conspiracy theories, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. um, but the left can be guilty of it too, uh, which mm-hmm. is just something that I don't think gets talked about a lot. And I would just love uh, to hear from your thoughts. What are some of the conspiracies on the left that you have been hearing or just paying attention to more? Yeah. I mean, I do think right now, like in our current moment, it is happening more on the right. If you go back a little bit, though, I mean, even think back to like the Bush years, um, there was, it, I, I would have said it was much more on, on the left back then in terms of like things that were really active. <clears throat> a lot of, you know, there was a lot of theorizing about who is getting kickbacks from like oil companies or defense com- contractors be to, to do various wars, especially Iraq. Um, so that sort of thing went on for a while. And, you know, some of that turned out to be like somewhat true. And, and some of it was just like, you know, there was no basis for it. Um, I think you could point to the way um, some people on the left and this has died down some in the last couple of years, but especially d- during the Trump administration, the way some people on the left talked about um, foreign and especially Russian attempts to meddle in our elections. Uh, we know at this point, at least, that a lot of that interference looked like basically exacerbating pre-existing social di- and political divisions with like posting on the internet. Um and that, you know, that is a, a real thing that does matter. I'm sure it had some effect. I'm sure it changed some people's minds or, or pushed them further in a direction they were already going. Like, it's not nothing. But it's not the same as, you know, hacking a voting machine and changing the number of votes. Like, it's just those are different in different categories. And yet you would hear some people talk. And again, this is like very much conspiracism. Like, there's not a coherent theory of here's how Russia changed, like, here's how I can show you the proof of X number of people changed their votes because Russian actors were posting on Twitter, right? It's just much more like nebulous and like this allegation of, well, maybe Trump never would have won if it weren't, if this weren't happening. They're like, you know, we have these whole investigations that um, did not really provide like a, a, a super clear smoking gun that people and many people anticipated. Um, and yet you would still hear people just sort of asserting like, you know, this connection is there. So uh, I think in a lot of case, in that case, as in a lot of cases, not that there's nothing there. It's not that there's mm-hmm. like no wrongdoing, um, but because it's this conspiracist mindset, it's like allegations and innuendo 
uh, much less and not really, you know, here is the data that I have that shows what the conspiracy was and who was involved and exactly what they did. Like, it's just a very different thing. Mm -hmm. So like for you, because, you know, in journalism and everything, finding, mm -hmm. you know, being curious and trying to find out what's going on, is it just like, okay, as soon as, as soon as I don't see any more evidence, then I stop looking for it? Or what does, what does that look like? Well, okay. So I'm not like an investigative journalist, so I'm usually not going to be the person like trying to dig stuff up anyway. Um, I would say for me, I just think the vast majority of cases, people are too stupid and incompetent to execute a large scale conspiracy, particularly of the kind that you hear people talking about right now, where, you know, especially like the 2020 election stuff, our, our elections are so decentralized and there are so many systems and so many thousands of people you would have to have involved. Like, it's just not it's just not realistic that none of those thousands of people decided to talk to the press and get the book deal. Like, I'm sorry, somebody would do it. That's how people are. Um, I was just speaking to someone recently, and I can't remember who it is, who said that um, Chuck Colson, you know, the Nixon yeah. administration guy who famously converted in prison and, and became a, a Christian writer, that he sa apparently said something to the effect of like, the reason I don't really buy into conspiracy theories is because I was involved in an actual conspiracy and, you know, at like the highest level of power and we couldn't hold it together and, you know, exposed ourselves within a couple months. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's very true. I think that's how, how people are. Um, and, you know, the other reason that I, I don't find it useful as a, as a journalist, and again, this would be different if my job was, you yep. know, big investigations. Yep. But the reason I don't find it useful as a as a journalist to be thinking about conspiracy theories is that there are just so many like bad and evil things just out in the open that I can yeah. spend all my time on. Like I don't need to go looking for hidden things that may not exist. Yeah. So probably the question that is on a lot of people's mind is, you know, I have somebody who, you know, is is in conspiracism mm -hmm. and it's like what do i do how do i talk how do i talk with that person and so what mm -hmm. have, what have you learned about how to have or and just to even engage them in those types of conversations yeah i mean unfortunately and and this is as frustrating to me as it is i'm sure to many people i think the answer the vast majority of the time is you can't engage them in those conversations you're mm -hmm. not gonna argue them out of that mindset, um, particularly because, again, it, it doesn't depend on, like, careful proofs. Yeah. Like, if you have an old school conspiracy theorist who's got their map of red string, you might be able to say, like, okay, well, but these two documents you have are forged, and so your whole theory falls down. With this mindset, that that doesn't work. That doesn't, they, they'll just move on to the next thing because it doesn't matter the details. All that matters is, um, you know, that the, the the right people are are subject to the accusations and so i think trying to argue people out of this stuff is really futile in again the vast vast majority of cases um and so what i've found and you know, there's no there's no silver bullet but i think the the best options that we have and i interviewed some some pastors who are dealing with this in their congregation for this chapter is should be trying to like maintain the relationship with that person, um, but very much focus it on doing other stuff, like normal stuff that mm -hmm. is outside of their obsession. Um, you know, every 
moment that they're spending with you talking about your dog or job or kids or vacation plans or whatever is a, a moment that they're not spending on this. Um, and so just constantly reorienting like your conversation and spending time together to normal, non-conspiracist things. And you, that may be all you can do for a long, long time is just sort of help them maintain that link to the real world. And especially, you know, they're probably going to be perfectly aware of your opinions. Like they know what you think. And it's, it's like, particularly if you have quite a big disagreement, I think it's just inherently useful for them to be reminded like, oh, right, I do have this friend or family member who is like outside my political group, but not like a baby killing monster. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's inherently useful. And then one of the the pastors whom I spoke with suggested that perhaps in that sort of relational context, you may reach a point where um, it is appropriate and the person is like in the right place to be receptive to you asking just like, what kind of fruit is this bearing in your life? And if they're in the space to answer that honestly, that they will recognize that it is not bearing good fruit and that perhaps that um, rather than trying to like refute all their claims that that might be a, a wake up moment for them. Mm -hmm. Another uh, cause of the knowledge crisis is you talk about the death of expertise as well. Mm -hmm. Can you trace back to me? Like, do you know, or can you see like where that began and like how it progressed? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think that it's a, uh, to some extent, it's always going to be a risk when you start making information more widely available. Mm -hmm. And like, you can even go back to when, um, you know, 500, 600 years ago, when people were first talking about, let's print the Bible in the vernacular language and let yeah. anyone buy it. Like, there's this one really striking quote, I want to say it's from like a bishop in England, somebody like that from back then, where he says something like, um, you know, if we do this, this is getting the Bible is going to be in the hands of like vulgar men and even women. And like, can we let like, we don't want that to happen because they're going to, you know, they're going to have it themselves. And once people are able to look at things for themselves and assess things for themselves, then yeah, they're going to have questions and are not going to have to simply accept what people in more expert positions say, um, you know, without challenging it. And so I think that that's always going to happen. Um, what's different I would say now in turn, why it, why it rises to the level of saying there's an, a death of expertise. That phrase comes from a, a book by the same name by a guy named Tom Nichols. And what he argues is that um, we, it's not just that people are, are questioning or, or distrusting specific experts. It's like the death of the ideal of expertise itself, where with the rise of the internet and the like unprecedented access to not only information and like primary sources like the Bible or scientific studies or what have you, we also have this unprecedented accent, access to just random speculation and nonsense from other people um, with no expertise who have no idea what they're talking about, but have say like a large Instagram following. Um, and so it's not just, again, that people are, are doubting or questioning a specific expert. Now it's just people don't, don't even think that that expert is a, in a different category to be doubted. Mm -hmm. um, everyone is 
deemed equal and my opinion is just as good as yours even though you have a phd in the subject and i you know failed out of that class in high school yeah what do you look for in an expert well i mean i think especially after the last few years of how you know a lot of experts didn't comport themselves super well during the pandemic um i think before that, we would have primarily pointed to um, things like more formal qualifications. Um, and you know, expertise is not just uh, is not just academic or elite. Like a, a plumber is an expert. Um, there are there are lots of different forms of expertise. And so, like, uh, I think previously I would have pointed much more towards you know, do they, do they work in the field? Are they, are they recognized by their peers as an expert? Do they have, if it's appropriate, a degree in the subject? Um, these kinds of things. Uh, now I would, not that I would discard yeah. that. I think that that's still very much important. Um, but now, and, and like, so Nichols says a, a combination of education, talent, experience, and peer recognition, all that is still super valuable. But I think comportment especially in interactions with the non-expert public is really huge Mm -hmm. Um, and this doesn't necessarily mean that an expert has to be a great communicator right because it's you know that's really asking for a second layer of expertise that you know many people may be like excellent scientists or doctors or what have you but they're not good at going and talking on cable news they're not good at expressing themselves on twitter that's fine. They don't need to be good at that. Um, and I think we're, we often unfairly want both. Um, but I do think they need to be aware of if they're good at that. Mm-hmm. And if they're not going to be able to do it well, like hand that off to the comms department or something, um, because it really does contribute to this depth of expertise when you have experts, um, you know, just botching it in public telling like noble lies like lies that are supposed to be for the public good um you know not doing a good job explaining that they're changing their mind on something because the research is advanced as opposed to just like it's convenient to change their mind on it um speaking outside their expertise that's a big problem where like someone will sort of make it big in their own um field and then they'll start getting requests to comment on things that are not not really their thing and and they'll say yes so i think how an expert behaves in public these days is is extremely important for their or you know having the wisdom to not be in public if that's not not for them um is extremely big part of it now Mm. yeah it almost makes me think that um if they're if they're always trying to save face or if they're always mm-hmm. trying to project like a great image. Cause I think of just what you were saying, like trustworthy experts are probably very okay saying, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that or changing their mind for like mm-hmm. whatever the research follows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, in fairness to them, all the incentives are against that. Yeah. Like, yep. you know, you're, you're not going to get invited back to a cable yep. news show. If you go on and say, I don't know, yep. you're not going to develop a big, Twitter following by saying like, yeah, we, we're not sure. It seems like the research is changing. I'm sorry. Yeah. I can't give you an answer on this yeah. right now. Like, and so like, I'm sympathetic, like they are in a hard position. Um, but I think they, they really need to take a, 
a, a firm line and saying like we're not gonna say things we yeah. don't we don't actually know because it, it just ends up so much worse in the long run yeah well the last cause that i want to ask you about and then I want to move into more of like what we could do about it and the habits and everything that you talk about mm-hmm. is you mentioned this idea of identitarian de- deference. I think that's how you say that. Um, mm-hmm. Can you kind of unpack that idea and what can, yeah, just let's just start with unpacking that idea. Yeah. So identitarian deference is a phrase from a guy named Matt Brunig, who is a, um, he's a lawyer and a commentator and he, he has his own think tank that he started. Um, and very much a man of the left. He's a socialist. Uh, and I think being a socialist and being so focused on economics um, and like class issues made him aware of this as a rising problem on the left well before uh, many other people were. And so he came up with this phrase in 2013 um, as a way to like sort of critique his own side. And the idea is basically that um when you're having conversations, you between someone who is, you know, relatively privileged, wealthier, more educated, whiter, these sorts of things, and someone who is comparatively oppressed, um, poor, less educated, darker skin, etc. The privileged person needs to defer to the opinions of the oppressed people, especially on topics related to their oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see this happen a lot in um, conversations, especially on the left, not exclusively, though. It does happen on the right, too. Now, um, sometimes cynically, you know, people will try to like manipulate this system to score points, but sometimes sincerely where people the way it often looks in practice is someone will say, like, well, speaking as a woman, my view on this is X or like speaking as a gay man, my view on this is X. And you the reason it takes that form is is by asserting that identity. It's, it's like a power play. It's saying, like, because of who I am, my opinion on this is more legitimate and you have to listen to me. And the, the identity um, becomes the more important piece than the actual content of the argument. Is it, does it make sense? Does it, is it backed up by the, the facts of the situation? Um, is it, you know, grounded even in, the whole like group of of oppressed people or is it just this one guy's opinion um so it's not it's just not a great way of of doing arguments um but this is how a lot of disagreements happen now and and you know people talk about like well how dare you question my lived experience and you know just because you experience something i think you know, identity and experience does give us yeah. extra insight into things. Like it, it's not something that should be written out of the conversation any more than like our emotions should be. Sometimes who we are is going to lead us to raise different questions, you know, than we otherwise would have or to answer them differently or offer different insights. But to use it just as a way to shut down the conversation and say, because of this unchosen characteristic, I win. That I think is a, a real problem and a way that, um, stifles conversation and makes it harder to seek knowledge together and to communicate to one another if we assume that these different identities really um, not only are going to determine how conversations play out but in many cases people will go so far as to say like well you you just can't possibly understand because you don't share my identity and so it it raises a wall between being able to share truth with one another Mm. 
Yeah. Can you tease out just the danger of that approach a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, so I think when we already have so many questions about like, what is, what is true and how can we figure out what is true? Um, and can we, can we trust each other to communicate, um, true, true things and then accurate reports adding this extra layer of saying like, well, you know, a white man cannot possibly understand a black woman's experience. Um, and the conversation just stops there. This is just like adding this extra layer of, of difficulty in, um, in figuring out what the world is like and then what we think about it. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of things I want to ask before we really dive into into the habits uh, that I think mm -hmm. set, will set that up a little bit more. Towards the beginning of the book, you mentioned how whenever you, before you started into this project, you held the assumption that Christian community would be the answer that solves literally everything for this problem. Can you talk about what made you change your mind about that not being the only thing? Yeah, I mean, I think community is a really big piece of it, um, but it's not a cure-all. And, you know, as Christians, we're primed to hear the phrase community and, and just think of that in, in purely positive connotations. But the, the two things that sort of changed my thinking about it, one, um, and I talk about this later more in the, the conspiracism chapter, is that if you're really desperate for community. Um, and, and I think conspiracism is often very closely linked to loneliness. If you're really desperate for community, you may well join a, a community and even a, a professedly Christian community that is like believing all kinds of nonsense, but you're so, so desperate to be with people that you'll buy into that. And so I think there can be cases where community, and again, even, even community that calls itself Christian can actually um, make things worse depending on the, the content of, of their beliefs and the way they're thinking about things. But the other bigger thing was just an experience that I had with uh, our, our old church in Minnesota, where we were having a congregational discernment process about gay marriage and ordination. It was a small congregation. So we had, you know, all the adults involved instead of just like bigger churches might have just the elders or something. Um, and we had mistakenly assumed that we all agreed with each other on this. And what we found out pretty quickly was that it wasn't just that we disagreed on the sub, like the actual question of, you know, what do we think about these things as a church, but we disagreed about how to make that decision. And so, and this, this disagreement even cut across positions on the issue itself. So there were people on both sides who wanted to say, all right, well, let's go to scripture and, and, and make a biblical case for or against this. And then there were people who wanted to take, you know, a very different approach. Like some people, it was very much just about like, you know, what are my gut instincts here? Some people wanted to say, well, like maybe the Holy Spirit is leading us in in this direction. Or um, some people wanted to say, you know, I have to think about what will my friends and family think if I go to a church that teaches X. And so that disagreement almost more than the actual question at hand made the conversation so much more difficult than we thought it would be. Um, and I, we moved um before the the discernment process finished because the pandemic interrupted it and we were like we can't do this over zoom um so i you know i, I don't actually know if they've finished that process I, I assume they have by now um but 
yeah, it, like that experience, because we had a, a, a very strong church community, we we're very deeply involved in each other's lives. And so before that, you know, I think I would have said like, well, okay, but if you have a solid church community life, you're probably not going to get into any sort of knowledge crisis space. But then, you know, after that experience, it was like, well, even there can even be cases where you have a very, very strong, very healthy church community, and you still have not thought about how to think and how to determine what you believe. Mm-hmm. The the other kind of story that I want to ask you about is you also write about a college professor that you used to have, and he would always, you know, he would enter a debate, but it was only under the agreement that both parties are open to changing their mind in it. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to just talk about that and why do you think it is like, cause that's not the norm. Like, it's like, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I want you to be open to changing your mind, but I'm keeping my mind closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was interesting. So he was, I, I, if I recall correctly, I think he had grown up in the church, but by the time I knew him, I want to say he, he described himself as something like a non-religious Christian where basically he liked a lot of Jesus's teachings, but didn't really buy into any of the um, the actual stories and the supernatural stuff. Um, and so, you know, he was, he would say like, you know, I'm willing to talk about Christianity or, or whatever with politics, philosophy, whatever, like very core basic beliefs that, that sort of define people's view of the world. He was up for talking about any of it with anyone, but you had to come into it and he had to come into it um, with the possibility that you would end the conversation having totally <laughs> abandoned your prior belief system. And at the time, I remember being like, I don't, I don't think I should do that. I don't think that that seems good. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a very uncomfortable proposition. Um, but these days, I would say, you know, I think that there's a real sense in which he was right, and that we we have to be willing in in sort of like public debates that we have to be willing to come into them um, sincerely seeking the truth and not just trying to hold on to what we already think and I think as Christians um, you know if if we really the fact if we find those kind of rules uncomfortable um, if we think that there is a real chance that we're gonna leave the conversation like as an atheist now um that's maybe an indication of not of not of like what a good arguer the other guy is going to be but of like the the state of our our faith where it is already and so if we you know if we really think that it's true then i don't think we need to worry about coming out of a, a conversation having been um argued out of it because uh, you know in theory this is a, a conversation where the the rules are you have to come in you know legitimately looking for the truth not looking to just change the other person's mind what helped you change your mind because you mentioned initially that you had a little bit of resistance to engaging in that but you've changed it sounds like you changed your mind about it yeah i mean i think a big part of it is observing in the decade and a half since what happens if we do not like commit to free debate um I think you you end up with a lot of what we've been talking about. You end up with um, identitarian deference. You end up with conspiracism. You end up um, in a scenario where no one is really trying to establish the truth or um, you know communicate it to one another. 
uh, it's really just about uh, like mm. spreading rumors and making my side win, um, you know, just tossing out allegation after allegation. It, it doesn't it doesn't even end up the way that you think it's going to be where like you're just so firmly standing your ground and sharing the truth with someone else who is wrong and needs to be willing to change their mind. It ends up, um, I think it, it, it grows in a distorted way and becomes um, just like chaotic and uh, very sectarian and um, not conducive to a, a healthy or an honest debate. Mm -hmm. So towards the, the, the last couple of chapters of the book, you mentioned several virtues and a couple of habits that can help us um, just combat the knowledge crisis that we're going through. And one of them that you mentioned is you talk mm -hmm. about being studious. Can you talk about mm -hmm. that and unpack kind of what that can look like a little bit? Yeah. So studiousness is about how we're seeking knowledge. Um, and in the way that people used to talk about virtue, we, we tend to think about like the a virtue as the opposite of a vice, but they, in, in older eras, people talked about virtues as, the the happy median between two opposing vices and so studiousness is on the one hand different from like a, a vicious curiosity where you, you want to know things um without really regard for what it might cost you to know and on the other hand it's it also is different from like gullibility and obtuseness where you, you just you don't have any curiosity and you're willing to either uh not know anything or just decide that you know whatever anyone tells you. Um, and so studiousness is about uh, making sure that you are using your, going to use your knowledge well, making sure that you're pursuing knowledge that is worthwhile for you to know. Um, it's about not, be, it's about being teachable and being generous in your learning, um, not just bickering with people and not being quarrelsome. Um, I think it's also about looking at things from a variety of angles. And so this would be sort of like the, the positive, healthy version of identitarian deference, where you're, you're eager to learn from people who are different from you and do have different perspectives and, and not necessarily to, to always defer to them and just assume that they're right, but to see what they have to say and, and weigh these different voices against each other. Um, I think it also involves uh, discipline and, and, tailoring and narrowing the the things that you're studying um and so like in in the context of reading the news and engaging in media it would mean you're not just blasting information in your face about anything and everything all day you're you're looking at specific things you're not you're developing a specific expertise on purpose and you're not just like you know talking all of the time about anything and everything that you don't really know um, so studiousness is, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely not something I think we think about it as just something for school and like you're doing your homework. Um, but it's a, it's a much bigger idea than that. And something that I think is applicable and important for us throughout our whole lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, what are some signs that we are pursuing or we are studious and it is, um, it's too far to the other end that you were mentioning. Cause I know that I could be, I could be, I, could, I love learning. I'm a very curious person. Mm -hmm. And like, that is mm -hmm. very much the temptation for me. And I would just love to hear what mm -hmm. are some of the signs that we need to be um, 
paying attention to to make sure that we aren't pursuing mm. truth at all cost yeah well i mean so like the the easiest example and one in which most of us are not going to find ourselves but like you think about um like medical like ethics rules in medical and scientific experimentation right like there are some experiments that could produce really really interesting and useful information but you just can't do them mm -hmm. um, and the kind of people who do them are literally the nazis in world war ii right like the, there are just some things you can't you can't do even though yes it would be a way to acquire knowledge and, and perhaps very valuable knowledge um so obviously most of us are not going to face that kind of ethical dilemma but i think that there can be other ways in which the the methods we're using to pursue knowledge we want um, are less than moral, less than virtuous. And I think in the context we're talking about, a lot of that is going to be about how are we behaving when we're doing it, like how are we behaving towards other people, um, and how are we using our time to do it, and especially what are we uh, taking that time away from, like what else... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could we be doing if we were not using it for this purpose? And perhaps um, maybe often in many cases, those those other uses of our time might might be more um, worthwhile for us. Yeah. Talk to me about like, how can the average person or what, what would be some advice to the person who's just like, I want to stay informed about what's happening mm -hmm. for it. But it's mm -hmm. very easy to get overwhelmed with everything. Too. Yeah. I would say two things. One is most of us don't need to be as informed as we think we do to be like responsible and reasonably knowledgeable citizens. Um, there are a lot of uh, like daily, here's the gist of today's headlines, um, email digest that you can get, like something that will take you five, 10 minutes on the outside to read. And I think for many of us on most days, that is all we're going to need to, to actually take in um, in terms of that big picture what's happening in the world right now um if you want to go beyond that if you know this is if news and politics are really of interest to you um in a particular and like truly yeah. of interest not just i i have this sense that i should should do yeah. this um but if it's actually something you enjoy what i would say is pick a few maybe at most half a dozen topics that stories that you're going to follow more closely and, and actually approach in a studious manner where you're not just reading some news articles about it. Maybe you're reading books. Maybe you're watching congressional hearings. Maybe you're reading, you know, academic papers on the subject, like something where you can develop some real like layman's expertise. And then when you are following that kind of story and by story, I mean something pretty big, like, I don't know, immigration policy, mm -hmm. not like what did ex congressman do on this day yeah. right like that's too small something pretty big um then when you're actually reading stories in that in the day-to-day -day, you would have the kind of context that you would need to from your you know like having read books um to be able to assess okay is this article that i'm reading you know representing this issue well did the reporter misunderstand something did they get something wrong are they interviewing the actually important players on this subject. Um, and you can't do that, again, for more than maybe three, four, five, six topics. No one has time for that. Um, even as a journalist, I don't yeah. write about every issue. There are a lot of topics I just almost never touch because I don't 
you know, I can't know about everything and neither can yeah. you. A couple other questions I want to ask you about, but is there just another habit or virtue top of mind that you want to mention real quick that might be helpful? Hmm. Um, so, I mean, the other two that I, I talk about at length are intellectual honesty and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and those sort of follow on after studiousness. Yeah. I think intellectual honesty is about once we have acquired some information, um, how are we like handling it? Um, how are we responding to it? And you know, are we, this, this very much goes to sort of like problems of political division and partisanship. Are, are we using the information we find uh, to, to wield power and to do what we want, or are we actually like responding to the truth as it is? Um, and then wisdom is also um, about the implementation. It's about good judgment and discernment. Um, and that I think is uh you know, it's hugely important as well. And it also involves how we're uh, engaging in with people with whom we disagree, people who have, who have, you know, also acquired knowledge and, and come to different conclusions. Um, and I think this is somewhere where like the, the descriptions of wisdom and folly in the book of Proverbs, which is yeah. just like vicious about yeah. how foolish people behave, um, you know, always talking and seeking conflict um, taking offense when they don't need to, uh, that is, you know, a huge virtue, especially if we're going to be active on social media. Yeah. One thing that you mentioned towards the end of the book is you talk about the role of love in this conversation was, which was very refreshing and also a little bit surprising as well. Can you talk about the role that love plays just in this wider conversation? Yeah. So that's an idea from, um, the theologian N.T. Wright, and it's it's closely tied, I think, to intellectual honesty. But basically, he says um, that when we're when we're approaching things with love, he says, when I genuinely love someone or something, I celebrate what it is um, or what that person is in themselves. Uh, but and this is not the same as our own interests, because if it is, then it isn't love. Um, it's just manipulation. And so when you're when you're seeking knowledge in love, he says. Uh, then, then we're really trying to to look at the thing as it is, and to to recognize it as itself, um, and it's you know to to even to take delight in it and to respect it and enjoy it, um, and that's that's different from just doing sort of a, a trying to be completely objective and detached, which I think in practice is not actually a an aspiration we can reach. Um, and it's also very different from just sort of taking a, a selfish and self-indulgent approach where we we say the thing is whatever we want it to be um, to, to relate to it in love. He argues is about um, taking it for what it is and um, and seeing that as a good thing and, and, and uh, seeing it um, as something to to inform us and also something that uh, has, you know, has its own value as truth. Another thing that you mentioned towards the end of the book is you talk about the role that first Peter, uh, and the impact that it had on you specifically as it pertains to this conversation. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so first Peter is a sort of a weird little book. 
Um, but it's it's very much about making connections between truth and knowledge, but also like holiness and love and and what the virtuous Christian life should look like. Um, he's he's making. I think a lot of times we tend to to think about um, acquiring knowledge and um, being virtuous and, and being loving as as kind of separate things. Maybe love and virtue we connect, but but the idea of like study and acquiring knowledge and, and logical reasoning these are we sort of think that as a of that as a separate project. Um, but Peter really connects them all together. He he talks about how like he'll he'll say uh now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another love one another deeply um and that's a that's a connection that i think we don't often make um and so i found myself sort of going back to first peter over and over again as i was um researching and then working on this book which sort of surprised me because it's not like one of my more familiar yeah. New Testament books. And then I was very happy to remember that one of my um, professors from seminary has a, has written, um, and I, I don't know if his second one is out now, but he's, he's written two commentaries on First Peter. Um, and so we, we had a conversation about, you know, the knowledge crisis and about what, what First Peter has to, to speak into the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, one last question I want to ask you, but is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we that we haven't co- covered? I mean, I know that there's a lot that more that we could talk about, <laughs> but anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we mention? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would end by saying, I think for, for many of us, people who are already adults, especially people who have spent like a lot of our working lives now in, in immersed in the internet um, <laughs> and uh you know, I, I think there's a sense to which this will, this knowledge crisis and our, our habits and behavior around it is something that we're always going to have to think about. Like, I don't, I don't see this going away for us. Um, I, I think it's something that will be, uh, you know, like an ongoing struggle even for the rest of our lives, unless we, I don't know, unless the internet goes away. Maybe if we do this nuclear war, it'll, it'll cease to be an issue. Um, but barring some sort of, you know, huge catastrophe like that, or, or you personally going off grid or something, this is always going to be there for us. Um, but I, and as, as discouraging and frustrating as I think that might be, what it also means though, is that, um, you know, especially as younger generations are starting to have kids or older generations are having grandchildren, um, we're approaching these new generations much better informed about what the risks are here. Mm-hmm. And like thinking back to my own teenage years and younger, the the concern back then was like, you're going to get abducted if you go on the internet, like somebody's going to lure you to a parking lot and take you. And that was, you know, not that that's never happened, but that's really not the big risk of our media environment. And I think as much as it's unfortunate to have had to learn what the real risks are from personal experience, the fact that we do know them, and in many cases, unfortunately know them so intimately does prepare us to um, maybe think about how we're letting, you know, today's children encounter this stuff and and maybe we can make, um, make things a little bit better for them. Well, you closed the book, you mentioned talking about, or you mentioned a conversation with uh, Dennis Edwards 
and you realize mm-hmm. that you were wrong about two things in this conversation. As we close, can you just talk to us about that conversation and what you realized you were wrong about? Yeah. Um, so one thing, and we sort of touched on this already, one was that I think, you know, my inclination and many people's inclination is to try to to argue people out of stuff. Um, and he he spoke about how he's had had friends or acquaintances who who 20 years ago um, were in a very different space on issues of like racial justice than they are now. And it wasn't because of he, you know, it wasn't because he, he persuaded them with his dazzling arguments. Like he says something happened along the way and, and he has to trust that the spirit was at work. Um, and, you know, it's, it's that, that work wasn't necessarily that, that someone did such a great argument and, and just convinced them. Um, and the other thing was, and, and that, uh, that story, I think points to it as well, that, you know, it wasn't him at all. And I think a lot of times we assume that if we're dealing with someone who's deep into conspiracism or, or one way or another, we think that they're real wrong about this stuff. We're going to be the ones who are going to, you know, fix things for them. Um, we're going to maintain that great relationship and, and redirect them to more normal stuff and help them stay in touch with reality. And, and someday they're going to be like, oh, you know, I, I, I understand that I was wrong and you shouldn't that I was wrong. And here's how my mindset has changed. Um, but that's not necessarily going to happen. Uh, and it reminded me of that, that passage where Paul says that, like, you know, I planted the seed and, and Apollos watered it, but, but God has been making it grow. I think we, we want to be the one who's there for the harvest. Um, that's not always going to be the case. In fact, maybe more often than not, it's not going to be the case. Um, and that doesn't mean, though, that that nothing is happening. Yeah, it even just reminds me, because I was just thinking about, like, man, I wonder what keeps you encouraged you know, just because this is just such an overwhelming thing. And I mm-hmm. think it's, I don't know, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it just reminds me of just like, well, it's because I'm not God and I have to trust God <laughs> with it all. Is it as simple as that? Or Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, definitely part of it. Um, I think also just the, you know, people recognize, I think that we have a a problem now that we have a, a, you know, maybe they're not saying we have a knowledge crisis. Yeah. Maybe that's not the the phrasing. People recognize that something has gone wrong in how we're we're dealing with knowledge and and information and belief now in a way that was not the case even you know three four years ago. I yeah. think. Well, Bonnie, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Untrustworthy, and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Um, well, the book comes out on October 11th. Um, it's a Tuesday, so you yeah. can pretty it'll much... It'll be out. It'll be out by know. the time yeah. that this conversation's out. Okay, yep. well, perfect. You can get it right away then. Um, and I am unfortunately on Twitter, <laughs> uh, Bonnie Christian. That's that's probably the the fastest way to to ask me like a, a quick question. But also, I do have a sub stack, yeah. um, which is free. It is not one of the paid ones um, at bonniechristian.substack.com. And one thing that I'm doing there is for subscribers um, in the few weeks after the book comes out doing like a, a Q&A book club where if you're a subscriber, you can send in questions as you're reading and um, I'll try to answer all of them, um, mostly in emails, but then for the sort of the last hurrah, my, my plan is to do some sort of like live Zoom event type thing for subscribers only to, to ask questions in real time. Awesome. Well, Bonnie, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and just thanks for doing the work as well. Yeah, thanks again for having me.
So coming out of that conversation, here are a few things that has got me thinking. I think the first thing is, and I guess it's, it's kind of two things, but all throughout the conversation, all throughout the book are these two themes of trust and truth. And thinking through, am I a trustworthy person? Am I pursuing truth or do I want to be right? I love what Brene Brown says is, do I want to be right or do I want to get it right? And this ties back to one of the big things that we talk about here on the podcast, and it's being the person that we wish that we had or being the person that was there for us. And here's what I know. That if we had somebody who was there for us and we truly believe that they had our best interest at heart, they were trustworthy and they were pursuing truth, even if it cost them, even if it hurt them and they were willing to do those things. And if we want to be those types of people, we have to be willing to do the same. We have to be trustworthy. We have to be pursuing the truth and, and dealing with the things in our lives that maybe make it difficult for us to do those things. Another thing is just also realizing that or just taking an inventory of what conversations am I not willing to enter for whatever reason. And it, maybe it's because of fear or I'm afraid. And, and just going back to that idea of Bonnie, of what she had mentioned with her professor, that the resistance to entering into a conversation because you're afraid that you might change your mind and going and asking, what's behind that? Why am I so afraid of that? Why am I feeling anxious about that? What makes me angry about that? Why do I feel jealous maybe of the people who hold the, the other opinion than me, but I would never admit it out loud uh, or out loud and digging into that and trying to understand that and doing an inventory of what conversations am I reluctant or resistant or not willing to enter. And then two things that I just want to, uh, that I would recommend in regards to this just greater conversation as well. And the first is just choosing to pick up the habit of reading, whether that is reading. And if, and if you're resistant, and I know that there are many people who are resistant to reading, but start out with something small, start out with maybe something on online, maybe start out with some fiction. Fiction can be could be great or learning or picking a subject just as Bonnie mentioned that you're interested in about and following that and learning or picking a book that looks interesting you and following and learning it and just setting the bar low just going like hey I'm just gonna read 10 pages today hey I'm just gonna read for 10 minutes today and building up our our intellectual muscles and realizing that it takes time to do that. We could compare ourselves to other people and go, well, so-and-so reads so much more, so many more books than me. They read so much faster than me, but just start. That's a muscle that they had to develop. Our brain is a muscle. Reading is a muscle. It's a habit that we have to develop in it. And the last thing that I would say, and this ties back to reading as well, but choosing a piece of history to understand and realizing and looking for areas to where, okay, so this, this thing that we're going through, it happened before. 
Where did it happen before? Who handled this very well? What was a similar situation that happened, you know, throughout the United States history or in world history and learning more and paying attention to that because history repeats itself. And if we don't pay attention to history, we are doomed to repeat the past mistakes and the past failures of it. And so those are just a couple of things that I'm thinking about. I highly recommend this book. It was such a joy to read as well. And remember, it's just untrustworthy, the knowledge crisis, breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community. So those are just a couple of things that I'm thinking about. Please go out and get the book. And that's all that I have for today. Actually, if you want, I almost forgot. If you want to, you know, continue to to learn to read, as I mentioned earlier, one of the best things you could do is subscribe to my newsletter as well. And again, it's just in the show notes, and I give you some of the best things that I'm learning from, some of the things I'm leading, learning, thinking about, and some of the things um, that I'm reading as well. So those are, uh, I guess, that's it. Now I truly am done, and I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you again to Bonnie for coming on the podcast and for just doing um, just such incredible, incredible work. And yeah, that's all that I have for today. Thanks for listening. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.